a card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. He stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays in the morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time until 10 a.m. Eastern Time. It's a two-hour show. I'm your host of Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, Professor Adi Weiner. I'm also a co-host and collaborator with my colleagues, Eric Bradlow and Cade Massey and Shane Jensen for our weekly show. And my regular day job is Professor of Statistics at the Wharton School of Business here at the University of Pennsylvania. This morning, I'm going to break down the week's top clips. And we had a couple of really great guests this week. We had Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for Major League Baseball. He's our regular guest. He's been with our show since the beginning, and he came came on to give us some insights into this year's baseball season. And we also had Mark Brody, a really fascinating expert on golf analytics. Mark Brody is a professor at Columbia Business School, and he's an author of the book Every Shot Counts, which is a breakdown of golf analytics. He's highly sought after as a golf professional coach. So let's go to our first clip, which is a discussion amongst Shane, Cade, and myself about relief pitching. The question, if you had to pick two out of the three components in a baseball team, three major ones, uh, which one would you pick? So we broke it down by batting, starting pitching, and relief pitching. And the the thought was that relief pitching would be okay to not invest in. You could pick it up. It's sort of less valuable. Most of the stat analytics suggest that it's less valuable. The worst statistics suggest that it's less valuable. Yet, nevertheless, it hurts like hell when you blow a lead late in the game. And Shane was ranting about his Red Sox, which has never really managed to put together a high-end relief pitching system, a closer. And the Yankees, of course, have been blessed since back in the days of Sparky Lyle, Goose Gossage, of course, the great Mariano Rivera. But before that, they had Dave Rigetti. They seem to always have terrific closing strength. The relief pitchers do typically pitch less of the game, yep. and they're more high variance. If I had to pick this, I would I would put the wor- you know the the bad part of my team would be relief pitching. But I can tell you from watching a team where that's the exact case, the Red Sox, where <laughs> the starting pitching's good, the hitting's good, the bullpen is not good. Um, psychologically, it's really hard to watch a team with a bad bullpen. Like yes, I think it, more more than leverage. more than more than those <laughs> other components. Yeah. I mean you. You Yankee fans don't know how lucky you are. That I mean, when was the last time the Yankees had a bad bullpen? Like in well, my li- in well, my of lifetime, well, Rivera was there for twenty years practically. Right, and then so, and then they just seamlessly like win. You know, it's, it's like Miller, Andrew yes, Luck yes, replacing yeah. Peyton Man. They've yeah. been just been lucky to sort of have this seamless like amazing bullpen. And though we can agree, it's probably not the one thing a team should be amazing at. Psychologically, it must be so nice to watch that and have the confidence right. that they're going to shut out a game. So when you're you, when you have a close lead and it's in the fifth, sixth inning, you're going to win. But how many blowouts do you yep. have to suffer through? And I, I, I'm kind of worried. <laughs> you're to on the, the right psych- side. It's kind of a psychological thing that you don't count those kind of blowouts. Yeah. What do you See, call that? Might, that's, that's your yeah. feel. What do you call it when you don't remember those terrible events? Or that, or that you 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 that's, that's counter to most conventional wisdom that you would actually feel those worse. No, 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 no. I mean, you what you feel worse is these sort of close games that you lose because your bullpen. What you don't feel is all the games that you lost, the non-close I games see. that you lost because your starting pitching sucks. 
So there's a long discussion on relief pitching. We're not going to have it now. I'm sure we'll get back to it some later time, how to best use your bullpen. And I think that's something we've talked to Rick Peterson about over the last couple of years. And now we're going to listen to Rick, and he's going to talk a little bit about the bottom of the strike zone. The strike zone has been changing quite a bit. I've noticed that in my own research. It's dropping lower. The, the umpires are giving lower strikes. Technically, the rule book strike hasn't changed. And that might actually be heading back up again this year. So let's hear what Rick Peterson has to say. Here's the thing. The bottom of the strike zone, the batting average is still just over 190 at the very bottom of the strike zone. The issue is at the bottom of the strike zone, if you actually throw a pitch that's actually at the bottom of the strike zone, it's a strike. The pitches that we're just talking about right now, these are balls. If the batter doesn't swing, it's a ball. You know, so, so what you're doing is you're, you're risking that if this, if this hitter has more discipline at the upper part of the strike zone, above the strike zone, that you're basically you're basically throwing a ball intentionally, and 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 it's a lot it's a lot more difficult to see that that you're basically pitching behind the count if he doesn't swing. Mm-hmm. But what you've seen over the last couple of years, walks are at an all time low, strikeouts are at an all time high, and home runs are at an all time high. Mm-hmm. You know, so this no this notion of this upper this upper kind of plane of of a swing, that's great if you have power because if you're going to put the ball in the air. It better go far, right? <laughs> right. Because if, if it doesn't go very far, you know what the outcome is, you know. But but so what you're seeing is, like, if, if you go back a year ago, Rob, Robbie Cano hit one home run, I think it was one or two home runs in the first half of the season, and they went back and looked at his TrackMan data, which is exactly what you're talking about right now. And what was happening is his swing plane was such that he had exit velocity of many of, of of exceeding over 100 miles an hour. If the exit velocity is over 100 miles an hour, 101 to like 105, 110, 12 is really, really high. If the exit velocity is over 100 miles an hour and at 102, 103, 105, and you put the ball up in the air in a slight plane, that ball is going to go, that ball is going to go out of the ballpark. Mm-hmm. So what was happening is Robbie Cano was, he was basically was hitting one hoppers to the second baseman. He's hitting one hop homers to the second baseman because of the swing, because of the swing plane. Right. And then what they did was they took a look at his swing plane and they said, "Listen, you know, we, we have to get a slightly upper, you know, like kind of an upper uppercut swing plane because you're making great contact, but you you have one or two homers in the second half of the season. He hit over 20 homers." So again, the context for this is a very interesting observation made by our previous week's guest, uh, Brendan Harris, who told us that one of the major innovations in in Major League Baseball, which has come about in some sense because of TrackMan, which tracks the angle of the ball of the bat, is that Major League Baseball players are preferring to hit with an uppercut as opposed to sort of a level swing or even a down chop. And the uppercut brings more strikeouts, but it also brings more exit velocity, more power. And and the the, the question is, and this is what, what preceded the clip from, from Rick, was what do you do if as a pitcher to defend against it? And what he said was, well, you can try throwing the high pitch. You cannot uppercut a high pitch. The problem with that, of course, and this is what Rick was making us quite aware of, is that the upper pitch, the high, pitch high enough that they can uppercut it, is a ball. And if the batter lays off of it, you begin the count with 
behind the count, and that's no good. The the uh, pitch at the bottom of the strike zone is a strike, and so it's very hard to hit a pitch right at the bottom of the strike zone, a little above it, and you get a nice uppercut and a lot of velocity. And then the second part of Rick's observation had to do with Robinson Cano, which which talked about the use of the track man to understand what problems Robbie Cano was having. It wasn't not hitting the ball hard; he was. It just he wasn't hitting it at the right bat angle, and they and they he made it, managed to make some adjustments in the second half of the season. He went from two home runs to twenty, and that's a quite a, an accomplishment due mostly to an, an analytical analysis of the plane of his swing. So let's go to another clip from Rick Peterson. Again, he's talking about the velocity, which is, of course, soaring again. And here is we have a discussion of Nick Syndergaard and height and distance to the plate. So you have this track, man. It's in golf. It's in baseball. Are there uses of this technology for immediate feedback? No, you can get immediate feedback without question. I mean, you, you, you can you can get, you know, release points. You know, maybe someone's arm is dropping down a little bit lower. I mean, but when you talk about TrackMan, TrackMan, what they're tracking is the ball. They're not tracking a body part. Right, right. So you, so they, so how do they? Uh, if you're swinging, swinging an uppercut, how would you know that immediately? Let's say you're off by, by ten by, degrees, five. By, by how the ball comes off the bat. I see. Now the one thing that's really interesting when you talk about perceived velocity, and you've heard that probably you've heard that comment before. Perceived velocity meaning the fact that. When the ball comes out of the pitcher's hand, the average in the big leagues of release point distance from the rubber towards home plate is just over six feet, about six, six, six feet, three inches, meaning that the ball is traveling just, just under 54 feet to get to home plate. So you look at Noah Syndergaard, for example, he, he releases the ball about seven and a half feet from the pitching rubber, oh, meaning, that, meaning that his pitch is traveling just over 50, just under 53 feet, 50, 52 and a half feet. So it's got his, higher velocity, perceived velocity to the batter because of that. Yeah. Correct. So his perceived velocity is two miles an hour faster than what his actual velocity is. You know, so, so oftentimes you'll see, and then he's pitching, he has the highest average velocity uh, of any starting pitcher in the big leagues. It's like last year it was like 97.5 or whatever. So his perceived velocity is like 99 and a half miles an hour, you know, which which is incredible. So there's a little insight that our, we don't necessarily understand so much because we're not behind the plate facing Noah Syndergaard on a daily basis. But the guy throws 97.5 miles per hour on average as a starting pitcher, which is the highest in major leagues on average for a starting pitcher. But he's also ridiculously tall with long arms so that his actual perceived velocity is even faster because the ball leaves his hand that much closer to the to home plate, I think about a foot and a half closer to home plate. And as a result, it appears to be 99.5 miles per hour, which of course is r- ridiculous and contributes in large uh, quantities to his success. So let's go to a different sport. We had the Masters this week, and in, in, in preparation for the Masters, we interviewed Mark Brody. As I said before, he's a professor at the Columbia Business School and the author of a book, Every Shot Counts. And the key statistic which he invented is called Strokes Gained, and what it does is it tries to normalize a golf player's performance for 
what might be expected. So if, you, if you're trying to putt from, say, 20 feet, and, and it should take you about 1.2 strokes on average to hit that, if you got the putt in in one stroke, you, you gained 0.2 uh, uh, strokes on that particular putt. And of course, if it, if it took you two, you'd have lost 0.8 strokes on that particular putt. And you can do that for any stroke and any play and, and any ball on, a, on any golf course. And that allows you to normalize a golf pro- player's performance into a, a quantity that makes sense to everyone, strokes. And we're seeing that happen in lots of sports. The baseball, it's to runs. In, 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 in football, it's to, to points or touchdowns or and in other sports we see this in basketball it's it's points um added and that's a way to to normalize everything you do onto a common scale so let's listen to mark brody strokes gained putting and what's happened with that over the last few years like what's the state of that statistic and what impact do you think it's had on you know broadcast of course and fans but but even players well it's i think had a had a tremendous impact and it was rolled out by the pga tour in 2011. The PGA Tour realized that there are three main putting stats, putts per round, putts per green and regulation, and uh, length of hold putts were not identifying the best putters. Mm-hmm. And they did a very clever thing when um, they prepped the media, the coaches, the players about this new strokes gain stat, which was they gave them two lists of, of uh, players ranked by their putting. And they said, which, which do you think is more representative? And the people would point to list B, you know. And then they would uncover it and say, well, list A was putts per round, and list B is this new thing, stroke skein putting. Right. They go, oh, wow, that, that sort of makes sense. So one of the, the key differences, I think, between uh, these new golf analytics and stats and other sports is the PGA Tour is putting it on their website, giving it to the writers and the broadcasters and the fans, and you can get it on their you know, PGA Tour app, and you can see it in real time as the tournament progresses, whereas other stats in, in baseball are sometimes relegated to some corner of the Internet with you know, the real you know, hardcore analytics types, that, but the casual fan in other sports often doesn't see it. But here, the casual fans are, are seeing it, and... I think it's been adopted just because it makes so much sense. It does a better job of identifying the the best putters, and I think that's also why the players and coaches have really taken to it. Okay, so Mark Brody is talking about how his statistic has managed to gain traction, and one of the ways he did that is by asking experts uh, which of the two ways of describing putters makes more sense to them, and they preferred the points, the strokes gained, the putts gained, and over putts per round. Now, that if you stand back and think about that for a second, it sounds a little bit odd. I mean, so what is putts per round? Putts per round is essentially the, your, your average number of putts per hole, and why would that be different or measure something different from the the strokes gain, which controls for the difficulty of the putt. And the answer is, is that there's a lot of variability and also, and it doesn't take into account, the putts per round doesn't take into account how good your drives are and your accuracy in getting to the green. And so those things matter a lot. And so a good putter is one who, who can be measured in after normalizing for the kind of putts that they have to take. And that's what the putts gained, the strokes gained statistic does for you. And it's far more useful and explains more about the game of golf than the more traditional statistics. And 
and that's why it has become so popular and it is used widely. And uh, so let's listen to Mark Brody tell us a little bit about some misleading statistics in golf. What's an example of a stat that you think is still not getting the appreciation that it ought to, or its counterpart, something that you think is still out there being used that's misleading in golf? Oh, well, they they continue because it's, you know, you have to, you can't just sort of wholesale dump dump all these old stats. And, and sometimes, right. you know, there there is some value to that, but certainly um, greens and regulation is one. Mm-hmm. Um, really? Uh, driving accuracy is another. So greens and regulation is is so bad because uh, the players that are leading in greens and regulation are not necessarily the best golfers in terms of driving or approach shots. And that's that's a hard concept to get people around, but it has has many flaws. One of the flaws is it's just 0-1. You miss a green on the fringe, you miss a green. You miss a green in the water where you're going to get a penalty stroke. It's still just a missed green. So right. it wildly mismeasures all kinds of shots. It doesn't give you a bonus for hitting a, a par five in, in two. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's many reasons that these traditional stats are flawed. It was a nice takedown of some of the more common statistics in golf, which is generally the, the, the themes that you hear in other areas. The idea that when you just count misses, the misses aren't, uh, of course, adjusted for any, in any way for the, the consequence of the miss. You know, so missing the, the green by a little bit is one thing. Missing it in the water is something completely different. And, and in baseball, we've been playing around with those stats forever. It's one thing to get a hit. It's another thing to get a hit. It's a double or a triple. It's one thing to miss a ground ball if you're in the second baseman. It's another thing to miss a miss a, a ball in the outfield if you're a center fielder that costs a double or a triple. So you have to think about the consequences of the errors, the consequence of the mistakes. And that's what a lot of modern analytics does is it, is it does the usual things that statisticians have known about forever and does that in a compact and a succinct way. And it's great to see that these statistics are making traction in a game like golf and one of the last ones, I think, to the party. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing some of these measures make their way in some of the sports that have yet to be looked at, um, like soccer. Not that it hasn't been looked at, but it hasn't been really successfully used yet in a way that really matters. We look forward to seeing that happen into the future. So if you want to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under podcasts. You can always listen to us live on Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. or any of the four other times throughout the week that we replay our show on Sirius XM's business radio channel 111. Please join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports and enjoy your statistics.